A leading Catholic intellectual has weighed into matters of political controversy once again, and with the potential to affect many of our lives for many years to come. Now, I'm not talking about Amy Coney Barrett, the recent nominee to the Supreme Court. I'm not talking about Joe Biden, the Democratic presidential candidate. Is the Pope Catholic? Well, he surely is. And I'm speaking instead of Pope Francis himself. Uh, that's because the Vatican has recently released a major new encyclical document from Pope Francis entitled Fratelli Tutti, which translates as Brothers All, a line from the Pope's namesake, Saint, Saint Francis of Assisi. In this document, he dips deeply into Catholic Christian religious ideas to give an ethical to give us ethical and political advice uh, in here in our modern age framed against the backdrop of the coronavirus pandemic. And yet everyone is paying attention to Co Amy Coney Barrett and Joe Biden. Nobody is talking about the Pope. Yet the Pope is the intellectual and political leader of one of the world's largest and most influential religions. Every Pope writes a small a number of these encyclical documents during his papacy. They represent the most explicit philosophical statements of church doctrine. When you read them, you can tell that they're written from the perspective of centuries of church ex experience, and they're aimed at influencing century, centuries of time to come. Uh, so what the Pope is trying to express and and reinforce in this encyclical is the basic moral perspective that the church is coming from, but which also dominates our world today. It's driving many of the events of our world today. What is this moral perspective? Well, welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we're going to be discussing the topic, the Pope's deeply Christian attack on individual freedom. My name is Ben Baer. I'm soon going to be joined by my colleague at the Ayn Rand Institute, Keith Lockich. So Keith, are you out there? Hello. Hi, Ben. Hi, Keith. So this is a this this new papal encyclical, Fratelli Tutti, I think is is fascinating. It's usually fascinating when these encyclicals come out. It's a rare chance to look at the the philosophic mind of one of the most influential religions on the planet. And it, the, the, the document, which I've read a few times now, opens uh, in a way that tries to hook it to contemporary events, though it, it turns out there's a whole lot more going on in here than just uh, the discussion, the brief discussion that he has about the COVID pandemic. This document was obviously written well before uh, that pandemic happened. And it begins by outlining some uh, broader kind of geopolitical concerns. The Pope says that one of the major concerns he has is, is the growing political and social division in our world. Various forms of political disintegration, he mentions explicitly Brexit, uh, the break of the UK with the uh, European Union. Uh, he speaks of rising nationalism in many uh, different countries. There are many kind of veiled comments, I think, about American uh, politics. Uh, and at the same time, another one of the broader concerns that he talks about is, is what he calls and what many people call globalization, which means the spread of global free markets 
uh, as he puts it, as society becomes ever more globalized, it makes us neighbors, but it does not make us brothers. And of course, what this encyclical is concerned with is saying that we should all be brothers. That's that's what the the title refers to. Yeah. So I, in his opening chapter, I, as I as I read it, what he's trying to do is he's trying to paint a portrait of the modern world and point to problems that he sees arising, problems that he's, he views as being a result of global capitalism and that sort of thing. And he's trying to put his finger on what are the, what are the causes of those problems. And he's pushing in a certain direction, given where he's going to go in the rest of the document. And, and the direction that he's pushing is he's trying to look at the moral premises that underlie global capitalism and, and to identify those to see are the, in his view, these are, these are the problems that are caught. This is what's causing all the problems that we have in the world today. So selfishness, individualism, you know, the belief in a sort of absolute right to private property. These are, these are the kinds of things that he's hinting at and pointing to in the beginning that he's gonna ultimately identify as this is what the problem is. You know, he, he puts, he has he, expressions like, you know, the drive to limitless consumption and expressions of empty individualism. These are the, the kind of moral um, drives that are causing the problems that he's trying to identify. And it's, it's, it's really quite, I mean, the title of our podcast is the church, the, is the church's, the Pope's deeply Christian attack on individual freedom. And it's, uh, before we get to the stuff about how deeply Christian is, it is worth underscoring just how much of an attack on individualism it is. I mean, in uh, towards the beginning of the document, he actually says radical individualism is a virus that is extremely difficult to eliminate for it is clever. It makes us believe that everything consists in giving free reign to our own ambitions as if by pursuing ever greater ambitions and creating safety nets, we could somehow be serving the common good. And, and once the, you know, he, he makes reference to the COVID-19 pandemic you know, he says this, what this reminds us is that no one is saved alone. We can only be saved together. And he warns that, you know, once this health crisis has passed, this is a quote, he said, our worst response would be to plunge even more deeply into feverish consumerism and new forms of egotistic self-preservation. So individualism, selfishness, in, in us, now we can talk later about how he's characterizing selfishness and individualism, whether we think that's accurate, because there's a certain uh, perspective that he's bringing to that. Um, but that's definitely the problem that needs to be solved, that he's, that, according to the Pope. And so what does he think we should do about all this rabid uh, individualistic So in the rest of the doctrine, it, what he puts forward is his solution, in effect, is that we need to restore the moral perspective of Christianity. And he, in particular, he stresses, you know, the duty to minister to the needy as the highest moral priority. Um, you know, chapter two, I know you're going to talk about this a little bit, but chapter two, he sort of, chapter one, he paints this portrait of the world, you know, problems that are arising and starts to hint at the, at the things that are going wrong. Chapter two, he spends, he devotes to a whole discussion of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, why does he remind us of the parable of the Good Samaritan? Well, it's it's the story, of course, where the uh, there's some there's a somebody who's injured uh, on the road 
and he's the robbed. important people he's pass him by. by thieves, actually. That's right. Yes, he's yeah. been beaten by thieves. The important people, the priests, the, the so forth, pass him by. It's only the Samaritan, who's a, a contemporary Palestinian, who stops to uh, stops to help, and the uh, the one who has the least to give among those uh, passing him by, who who then ministers to his needs. Uh, with the implication, of course, that all the other people should have done so as well, if even this person could do it. Uh, and it goes back further than the, the, the perspective that he draws on goes back further than the, uh, the Good Samaritan story, which is a New Testament story. He also he goes all the way back to the Old Testament story of Cain and Abel, which is, of course, where we get uh, the line, uh, am I my brother's keeper? And of course, the uh, the Lord's suggestion in the Old Testament story is that, of course, you are. What, why did you kill him? And uh, that's what Pope Francis wants us all to be, not just to our literal brothers, uh, as was the case in Cain and Abel, but even to someone from a different tribe, even somebody from a different side of the planet is to be seen as our brother. Um, yeah. And this I mean, is of course in keeping with a, with a whole, uh, a, a much broader New Testament perspective that you see coming out of uh, things like the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. Uh, if you want real salvation, give everything to the poor. Come follow me. I'll say a little more about the New Testament a little later. Uh, I just want to jump in. I mean, he stresses in in talking about the Good Samaritan. You know, there, there are two kinds of people. And what kind of person are you going to be? The people who help the Good Samaritan and the people who ignore him and just go on with their lives. Um, it's, the, it's not the Samaritan who's in trouble. It's the Samaritan who helps. But yeah, that's the idea. Uh, so one thing that I want to stress about this perspective on charity is that and I've already seen some people in, in some of the live chat uh, commenting on this because we're suggesting that this is a deeply Christian moral perspective. And there's, there's a, a response I've heard out there that says, well, the Bible and Christianity, they want you to donate to charity voluntarily. It doesn't have the kind of political implications that the, the Pope is about to discuss and that we're about to present from him. But one of the things that the Pope stresses in this new encyclical is that he sees charity as a obligation and a duty, not just for private individuals, but for politicians. He thinks that one of the loftiest forms of charity, he mentioned, is the act of the politician who tries to restructure society in such a way as to, to cater to the needs of the, of, the various, uh, of the various needy people all around the globe. And uh, if people are thinking that this isn't compatible with uh, some kind of political agenda that involves things like a welfare state and redistributionism, uh, you'll have to look at some of the arguments that the Pope makes, and we have more to say about that as well. Yeah, so he's so he says explicitly that one of the things he's calling for is solidarity. What does he mean by solidarity? It's a, he says it means much more than engaging in sporadic acts of generosity. It means thinking and acting in terms of community. It means the lives of all are prior to the appropriation of goods by a few. These are quotes from the encyclical. It means confronting the destructive effects of the empire of money. So. Um, and he, so that he, he quotes various saints who, and he's, <clears throat> he references a, a tradition in Catholic thought going all the way back, you know, to St. Augustine and beyond, you know, not to share our wealth with the poor, 
<clears throat> is to rob them and take away their livelihood. The riches we possess are not our own, but theirs as well, right? Uh, another quote from St. Gregory, when we provide the needy with their basic needs, we are giving them what belongs to them, not to us, right? So it's the idea that need the needy have the first claim. And if we, you know, if we pursue wealth and we keep it for ourselves, that is, that's a moral crime in this perspective. And we're, 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 we're essentially robbing from the poor if we don't give them um, what they need. And so just as a, to their needs. as a political corollary to that, if it's, if you really think it's true that this, uh, that when you're giving back, when you're giving to the needy, you're giving to them what's already theirs. And if you don't, you're robbing from them. Well, then if a government comes along and taxes you or redistributes your wealth to give to the needy, it's just giving back what was what you already robbed from them by that logic. And so there's a, there's a really consistent logic here, whether or not it's got a decent foundation is a separate question, but he's drawing a point out. Yeah. And, and he explicitly goes after the, the, you know, free market and global capitalism. You know, do we hit another quote from the encyclical development must not aim at the amassing of wealth by a few, but must ensure human rights personal, social, economic, and political, including the rights of nations and peoples. He says the right of some to free enterprise or market freedom cannot supersede the rights of peoples and the dignity of the poor. In other words, the, this, the, the duty to minister to the needy of the world is the highest moral priority that supersedes any right to free markets, to private property, to market freedom, to free enterprise. I mean, he's driving the money changers out of the temple to use a, a <laughs> biblical reference. Yeah. yeah. Now, the one thing that I wanted to point out, and if you read the encyclical, these documents are always very interesting, as you said at the beginning, they're very philosophical. And, and it's important to pay attention to the concepts that are being used. Notice that he talks about the appropriation of wealth, right, or the amassing of wealth by a few. And it raises the question, there's a, there's a, there's a big question that he doesn't address in the article. And yet everything that he talks about in this encyclical depends on the answer to this question. And that is, what is the source of wealth? Why, for instance, is the world so much wealthier today than it was for almost all of human history? You know, the industrial revolution, the last 200 years saw this incredible explosion in standard of living and life expectancy. I mean, you know, the, you see these hockey stick graphs of of just the, the incredible progress that humanity has, has enjoyed in the last 200 years. Where does all of that come from? Now, he doesn't talk about any of that or even ask that question. He thinks about it in terms of the appropriation or the amassing of wealth. And what, what, what kind of perspective is this based on? So it's the idea, you know, the perspective, I mean, he's, he talks about this explicitly in the encyclical, but the idea is that God gave the earth to all people equally. And if some people, you know, appropriate some of the wealth that's in that world, they're taking it away from other people. And I mean, you can think about it from a sort of fourth century perspective. Somebody stumbles upon an apple tree and there's 50 apples on the tree. If you take 10 apples off the tree, well, then you're only leaving 40 for other people. Right, or if you take 40 apples off the tree, you're only leaving 10 for other people. There's this idea that wealth consists in resources that we just happen to find in nature. And there's a zero sum game. If I take some, then I'm leaving less for everybody else. 
Now, maybe in the fourth century, there was an excuse for having this perspective on wealth. But looking back from the perspective of the 21st century and the, the kinds of the, 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 all the, the um, material wealth that we have all around us and the, the values that people have created, the, the standard of living, the quality of life that we enjoy, there's no excuse for, for um, imagining that this is that wealth is just something we go around and scoop up off the ground. Um, I wanted to say, did you want to jump in on the, on this point about property rights, Ben? Because I wanted to talk about where, where what what the source of wealth is. But it looks like you have something to say here first. Yeah, just that uh, one of the things that the the Pope stresses is that uh, the idea that there's uh, some special protection afforded to property rights, that uh, they can't be uh, overridden for the sake of servicing the needs of others, is, a, is an idea that doesn't have a basis in Christian tradition. Uh, and this, I mean, this goes along with some of the references that you've just made to uh, saints that he quotes who say that the, the, you know, the goods that you have really belong to the poor. Uh, but I, you know, I would challenge anyone who thinks that there's a firm basis for property rights to point to what it is, what, what ideas in that tradition really do support that. Because when you, when you uh, look to this idea that uh, the acquisition of wealth is unimportant, that it's best to share with others, that you shouldn't uh, spend so much time amassing treasures on earth. This is a deeply Christian idea. And it's it's not just something that's coming out of Pope Francis or, or even any of the saints that he quotes. It's coming right out of the Sermon on the Mount. That's where Christ says, don't busy your time collecting treasures on earth. Instead, look to, to uh, gather treasures in heaven. It's where he says in a very memorable line, be like the lilies of the field. Don't toil, worry only for the morrow. The implication there is uh, the, the Lord will provide with you if you have, if you have faith. Um, there's a reason why uh, in, in the Catholic religion, at least, uh, taking holy orders, especially becoming um, living a monastic life is seen as one of the most, is one of the highest sacraments. Priests and monks are there supposedly to live in imitation of Christ. That's why they took a vow of poverty and chastity, because they don't want to be distracted by goods of the world. They want to instead be focused on, on the supernatural world. Uh, and so they live in communion with each other as equals, and they don't have significant private property. Uh, the thing that you usually hear from conservatives today uh, about Pope Francis is that Pope Francis is some kind of closet Marxist infiltrator who's smuggled uh, all of these left-wing ideas into the church. And so he's not really a Christian, and that's what explains the kind of doctrines that he's uh, that he's uh, articulating. But I mean, one thing is that we know that that other popes have had similar positions down through the ages. Some of the ideas that we've been drawing on uh, come from Ayn Rand's commentary. 
uh, Requiem for Man, which was written in 1967 in response to Pope Paul VI's encyclical, Progressum Pop, uh, uh, Popularum Progressum. I always get the Latin mixed up. But uh, he argues for many of the same kinds of ideas. And so it's not like the, the, the Pope is a secret Marxist. If anything, it's that the Marxists stole these ideas from the Christians. The Christians have had these ideas for centuries. And the Pope, I think, knows Christianity and the deepest doctrines of Christianity far better than many of his conservative critics. Um, and one of the remarks that Ayn Rand makes about this in that essay, Requiem for Man, I thought I would show uh, a brief quotation from before we get to the question more about where does wealth really come from. She says, it's either or. If capitalism's befuddled, guilt-written apologists do not know it, two fully consistent representatives of altruism do know it, Catholicism and communism. Their rapprochement, therefore, is not astonishing. Their differences pertain only to the supernatural, but here in reality on Earth, they have, uh, they have three cardinal elements in common. Uh, the same morality, altruism. The same goal, global rule by force, the same enemy, man's mind. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Today, Catholicism and communism may well cooperate on the premise that they will fight each other for power later, but must first destroy their common enemy, the individual, by forcing mankind to unite to form one neck ready for one leash. So I let me just let me just add to what you said there, because the you know, there are certain quotes in this encyclical that people you know, conservatives could take, could look at them and say, oh, here's the Pope, you know, giving a basis for business and, and productiveness and the kinds of things that we're advocating here. So just here's a, this is a quote from paragraph 123 in the encyclical. He says, business activity is essentially a noble vo vocation directed to producing wealth and improving our world. God encourages us to develop the talents he gave us. And he's made our universe one of immense potential. In God's plan, each individual is called to promote his or her own development. And this includes finding the best economic and technological means of multiplying goods and increasing wealth. So somebody could look at that and say, yeah, so the Pope is supporting business activity. He's saying this is a good thing. But you have to look at it in context because the very next paragraph, the very, very next sentence is business abilities, which are a gift from God should always be clearly directed to the development of others and to eliminating poverty, especially through the creation of diversified work opportunities. The right to private property is always accompanied by the primary and prior principle of the subordination of all private property to the universal destination of the earth's good, goods, which is this Catholic doctrine that God created the earth you know, for all mankind equally, and thus the right to all of their use. So I view these two parts of this paragraph when, when he talks about business activity as being a noble vocation. This is, and this, is, this is not because we have a right to work and to produce, to create the goods that we need to further our life and happiness. It's, it's, this is a gift from God and it's only value is how we're employing it in the service of the needy and in the service of others. I actually see the two parts of these paragraphs when he talks about developing our talents and finding economic and technological means. I view this as the sort of from each according to his ability part of the paragraph. And then when he says, 
they should always be directed to the development of others and to eliminating poverty. That's to each according to his need. This is this is this is expressing the basic principle of Marxism um, in in his religious terms. Yeah, and I should mention that that uh, first passage that you read, he he footnotes Populorum Progressio, which is the same one that Ayn Rand critiqued, and. Yeah, it's really important to stress that she that he thinks that these business abilities are gifts from God for the purposes that God wants us to use them for. And if anybody, if business people don't accept or realize that, well, that's where those with political gifts come in, the ones who uh, serve the noblest form of charity by restructuring society along the kinds of status lines that the Pope wants to. Yeah, I think I think if people are looking, I know you're going to give some further readings at the end, but I think the 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 encyclical Populorum Progressio from 1967 from Pope Paul VI is an is is a fascinating document itself, and I actually I don't really think that there's anything in the most recent encyclical in in essential terms that's fundamentally different from what Pope Paul VI put forward there. And Ayn Rand has this has an essay that she wrote in response to. Uh, Popularum Progressio called Requiem for Man, which you mentioned, which is if you if you want to see her perspective on the kinds of ideas that both of these popes are putting forward, that article, that essay is a fascinating read as well. Um, and as you said, a lot of the ideas that we're drawing on are coming from that. And if anything, I think that uh, Tutti Fratelli expresses the same essential ideas in even more pronounced and amplified form yes. than uh, the earlier encyclical did. Yeah. So coming. So again, if if we think this perspective is wrong, what? Why? Why do we think this perspective is wrong? Well, I want to I want to come back to this question: What is the source of wealth? So I, I re, earlier I rejected the idea that wealth is something we just find in nature, and it's a it's a finite sum, and if some you know it's a zero sum game. If I take some of the apples, there are fewer apples for other people, right? So. If that's false, what is what's a what's a what's a better way to look at it? Well, the the perspective that Ayn Rand really reinforces, and this is you know especially in her novel Atlas Shrugged, is is that the source of wealth. When you, and what is wealth? I mean, wealth is all the goods and services and values and things that we need and and want to make our lives better, to live our lives and to and to make them more enjoyable and happier, right? So when you talk about wealth, we're not just talking about piles of coins or something like that. We're talking about all the things that we have in our lives that make them better. And where does all that stuff come from? Well, so Ayn Rand's perspective is that all of that has to be produced. And it's not just we go around and scoop it up in nature. You know, we don't just stumble upon an apple tree, right? Uh, what we do is we, we decide to cultivate an orchard. So we do all the thinking and the work that's required in, in uh, you know, working with the land, growing the trees, you know, and, and instead of producing 50 apples, we, as a result of that thinking and that labor, we can produce thousands of apples, right? Now, if somebody who does that thinking and who does that work and produces those thousands of apples, that's not that's not just something we find in nature. And how is that person taking that away from anybody else, right? Is it is it 
is it right to say that he's taking those thousands of apples away from other people who didn't do that thinking and didn't do that work? And is it just, is it fair to you know, demand that he give those apples to the people, the unproductive people who didn't do that work? So this is the, this is a, 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 the opposite perspective that we're, um, we're trying to ask here. Now, if you take, you know, that's a simple example of a, of a finding an apple tree out in nature versus cultivating an orchard, but you take that and you multiply it across all of the, all of the advanced products and values and services that we have in our modern world. And you ask, where do all those things come from? You know, wealth is not amassed. Wealth is not appropriated. Wealth first has to be produced and, and production is the result of, of, of the, the thinking and the labor that goes into um, figuring out how to create all of that wealth. And the more complex the processes and activities, the more intellectual the work becomes. You know, you think about a CEO of a huge company um, coordinating the efforts of thousands of employees. That kind of intellectual labor is what results in the incredible productivity that we have, that we enjoy in the world today. And one of the things that Ayn Rand stressed in her earlier critique of the earlier encyclical in, in Requiem for Man is how little, you mentioned Keith, how uh, there were passing references to the nobility of business in the recent encyclical. There were also passing references to the importance of intelligence in the earlier encyclical. And one of the things I just said a moment ago was that if anything, this latest uh, one by Pope Francis uh, ha has all the essential features of the earlier encyclical except in more amplified form. And on this point, I think that is particularly true that you see pretty much zero reference to the importance of human intelligence. If anything, what you see in Fratelli Tutti is, is open hostility to it. Uh, I mentioned that he begins the, he begins the document by kind of lamenting the political disintegration of our age, but there's a lot of focus there on how it's been assisted by communications and information technology and social media. And the blame for him is pointed mostly at the technology and not at the way that people use it or the ideas that they use. And then, especially when he's framing his whole argument around uh, the COVID pandemic, he he begins by quoting a speech that he gave uh, fairly recently on this subject, speaking about how the pandemic has, now I'm quoting him, has exposed our vulnerability and uncovered those false and superfluous certainties around which we constructed our daily schedules, our projects, our habits, and priorities. And then he goes on to say, if everything is connected, it is hard to imagine that this global disaster is unrelated to our way of approaching reality, our claim to be absolute masters of our own lives and of all that exists. I do not want to speak of divine retribution, nor would it be sufficient to say that the harm we do to nature is itself the punishment for our offenses. The world itself is crying out in rebellion. So he's not quite going so far as someone like Pat Robertson, who will blame hurricanes and tornadoes on our sin, but he's pretty much bumping up against the same idea self-consciously uh, 
except this time the relevant sin isn't uh, fornication or sodomy or something like that. The sin is the pride that we take in, in manipulating our own environment through our scientific intelligence. I mean, and that's worth, that's quite a lot of hostility to the mind. Well, I mean, it's worth noting that his that his uh, previous encyclical, uh, I don't, I'm going to get the Latin wrong, Laudato Si. I don't, I don't remember the translation. That was the one about the environment, if I remember. It, it, this was was basically putting forward the, in, you know, the the probably the most. Um, uh, uh, they, uh, putting forward the, the perspective of the modern environmentalist movement couched in religious terms. Um, and, and yeah, it, it's, it's uh, not only do we have a duty to sacrifice for the needy around the world, but he's also, you know, pointing out to all the ways in which our greed and selfishness is, is uh, preventing us from sacrificing for the planet. So it, it, it's, yeah. So Keith, we have, I think, one last big chunk of material that we want to discuss. But before we do that, let me just take a moment to remind people who are watching that we are going to be looking at your questions very shortly. Best place to put those is in the Q&A module in Zoom. And again, uh, we're also monitoring Super Chat on YouTube. Yeah. So what is all? what are the p political implications of all of this? As far as the Pope is concerned, uh, what should the political perspective, what should the opposite political perspective be according to Ayn Rand? Well, so the, um, I mean, what, what Ayn Rand stresses is that, uh, in, you know, individual, so, so first of all, she wants us to have a, to, to reconceptualize the way we think about the concept of selfishness. When we, we, in our conventional way of understanding the term, it is, it's, a, it's a sort of short-sighted, whim-driven grab for you know, whatever we can get our hands on with no regard for other people. And she rejects that concept entirely. When she, and, and, and she really, she defines a new concept of selfishness that um, pulls apart this packaging together of concern for one's own interests with acting on whim and with no regard for other people, which is why do those two things have to go together? Her conception of egoism or of selfishness is the idea that, um, that what it looks like to, to live a human life is to live, is to live by reason, to be productive, to produce wealth, and to enjoy the fruits of that, to pursue happiness for one's own sake in harmony with other people. And part of what goes along with that is are things like a right to private property, the right to free, you know, to trade freely with other people. Um, I mean, it's it's a it's basically it's it's fundamentally rejecting everything that the Pope is putting forward in this document um, in defense of of a completely opposite perspective. Um, you know, rational self-interest, capitalism, individualism is the perspective that she's putting forward. Yeah, one of the things that Ayn Rand also stresses in Requiem for Man is that if indeed, as, as you've argued just a moment ago, it's the rational mind that is the root of production and therefore of wealth, uh, then you need to 
understand, well, what are the requirements and the needs of the rational mind if, if what you're concerned to do is, uh, is, to, is for, to create enough wealth, uh, then the mind needs to be respected. And what she thinks the major requirement of the mind is, is individual freedom, which is, of course, the opposite of what the Pope is urging. The Pope is urging the abrogation of all kinds of forms of individual freedom, especially individual property rights, uh, and doing so uh, on the premise that you can then just take the property that others have, that, that, that the productive individuals have created and redistribute it without really any uh, need to worry about what was the mechanism that created this wealth in the first place. And last thing that I want to, to really stress here is that there's a very noteworthy uh, point that Ayn Rand makes in that essay when she talks about the way the same plea was being made in Populorum Progressio. She says, the entire encyclical is a plea for the products of industrial wealth. It's scornfully indifferent to their source. It asserts a right to the effect, but it ignores the cause. And then she references a line from Galt's speech in Atlas Shrugged that uh, where, where the speaker is uh, highlighting the same kind of attitude and what's wrong with it, which he characterizes as amounting to the goods are here. How did they get here? Somehow, what caused it? Nothing has causes. And so, I mean, if I could summarize what is the, what is the one of the deepest uh, Christian ideas that's at work here, it's, it's the uh, it's it's an epistemological idea. It's the idea that we should go by faith. We don't really know how we can create or spread or distribute wealth by appropriating it from those who create it without any respect for the conditions that they require. But it'll happen somehow. That's what faith amounts to. It's the same kind of faith that socialists want us to have when they say, "Just wait until the next five-year plan." comes along. And of course, it's the it's Christianity, which more than anything else has elevated and celebrated the concept of faith. Uh, it's faith that then leads to force. It's faith that leads to this call for expropriation. This is one of the reasons why Ayn Rand thought that faith and force are corollaries, reason and freedom are the opposite corollaries, that if you want to respect the individual mind, you need to give it freedom. That's how wealth is then produced. That then works to uh, allow people to create and exchange values for other values. And that's part of the reason why, to come back to your point, Keith, about Ayn Rand's alternative conception of selfishness. For her, selfishness doesn't mean uh, cut my th cut your th uh, cut other people's throats in favor of your own it means trading value for value it means mutual coexistence and that's what she thinks is the real key to the possibility of human unity not the kind of collectivism that pope francis offers as a solution to the many real divisions that we do see today yeah i mean the, so the, there's a certain irony that that all of these popes, Paul, Paul, Paul VI, um, Pope Francis, and you know, all of the secular altruists in the world today, the, the socialists and so on, 
who, who claim that what they're trying to achieve is a world of peace and brotherhood and unity and progress. And yet the ideas that they're advancing are exactly the ideas that will undermine and destroy all of those things. Peace, brotherhood, progress, wealth, industrialization, all of that is, is, is um, under attack by the moral ideas that they're advocating. And if, and if those of us who actually want to, who do actually want to see those things achieved in the world need to take a hard look at the moral premises that we're advocating. And Ayn Rand offers a, offers a, a radical rethinking of morality um, as a way of you know, defining what the moral code is that actually results in those things. Well, good. I think we should. I think yeah, we should uh, take a look at some at some questions. We've got twenty minutes left to do it, and I, I see there's already tons of questions that have been coming in, both in English uh, and in Spanish. Uh, there's a few questions here about um, different popes, and are there pro-capitalist popes? I mean, I, I'm I'm certainly not an expert on on the history of Catholicism or the or the uh, you know different popes, but I, you know, you ask what's the difference between John Paul, John Paul II, Benedict the Sixteenth, and and Pope Francis, you know, in in this, or even put going back to Pope Paul the Sixth. I think in essential terms, there really is no difference when it comes to capitalism because of what we were just talking about. The moral ideas that all of them are putting forward are are precisely calculated to undermine and destroy capitalism and freedom and and you know progress and industrialization and all of that. So I think in a, in a fundamental sense, there really is no difference. Yeah, I'll say one thing about Pope John Paul II, who I imagine is the Pope that some of the questioners might have in mind here, because John Paul was a noteworthy critic of communism uh, and you know probably made a significant difference, especially you know given his relations with his native Poland in bringing the end to communism in the Eastern Bloc. But I think that the way you have to understand that uh, dynamic is with reference to the quote that I shared from Ayn Rand earlier, how it's possible for two different perspectives to share all the same basic fundamentals, uh, but still be bickering over the particular means by which to enact them. And uh, the way that she put it was uh, the communists and the capital and the, the communists and the Catholics were basically on the same page in terms of fundamentals and they were then just going to figure when when they had together united to defeat capitalism uh they would fight it out amongst themselves in the end and uh this this is here's a case where they were basically doing that uh, whether or not they had actually already defeated capitalism and if you look at john paul's social teachings i mean he's noteworthy most mostly for his kind of moral cultural teachings on his positions on abortion and contraception, euthanasia, uh, et cetera. But when you look at his social teachings, they're not in any way contradictory to the same things that Francis and Paul VI have been talking about. And I should mention, this could be the subject of a whole other uh, uh, topic, but uh, Francis isn't opposed to what John Paul says about abortion either. They maybe choose to emphasize different things, but these are all mutually consistent. And that was something that Ayn Rand herself commented on in a later commentary on another encyclical in her essay of living death. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, Pope Francis quotes John Paul II in his document here. This is quoting John Paul II. I mean, he's, he's quoting him as reinforcing this idea. 
God gave the earth to the whole human race for the sustenance of all its members without excluding or favoring anyone. So, I mean, it's not a big leap from that to workers of the world uniting. <laughs> so, um, so maybe we should take the question about private property. Someone asks, uh, someone suggests Christianity is all about private property. One of the commandments is thou shalt not steal. Uh, Francisco is, uh, Pope Francis is wrong and does not represent Christianity correctly because he leans left. How do you justify saying that Francisco's attitude attacks are deeply Christian? Well, it's true that the there's an Old Testament commandment, thou shalt not steal. But there's also an Old Testament commandment that says thou shalt not kill. Uh, and if you look at the way that this is interpreted by the church, uh, it's not interpreted to mean thou shalt not kill under any circumstances whatsoever. It's interpreted to mean, and the uh, Hebrew even backs up the idea, it means thou shalt not kill unjustly. Uh, and so if you're fighting a war of self-defense, for instance, then it's just to kill. Uh, it's And ultimately, I mean, the way that St. Thomas Aquinas explains this, what's the determinant of whether or not killing is just or not is the will of God. Uh, if God says to Abraham, kill your only begotten son, then killing is justified according uh, to St. Thomas Aquinas. And I assume that the same basic perspective would apply to how to think about don't, don't take money, don't, don't steal. It means don't take resources unjustly, but well, what determines when it's just or not to take these resources? Well, again, that's going to depend upon the will of God. And if the will of God is that our resources be used to serve the poor, then when a politician takes your resources away from you to serve the poor, they're doing the will of God. And if you accept claims about what the will of God is on the basis of faith, which is really the fundamental Christian perspective, who are you to challenge any of those kinds of claims? Um, I, I just wanted to acknowledge we got a super chat from Mary Aline. So thank you for that. Thank you, Mary Aline. Um, and I, I, again, the on the idea that Christianity is all about private property, I mean, um, and, and that this is just Francis, who's, you know, distorting the ideas. I mean, I mean, he quotes and we referred to doctrines that go all the way back to, you know, the, you know, the, the first centuries after Christ. Um, this idea that not to share our wealth with the poor is to rob them and take away their livelihood. You know, when we provide the needy with their basic needs, we're giving them what belongs to them, not to us. These are ideas that go all the way back to the beginnings of Christianity. And the idea that that the the right to private property is subordinate. So you can you can not you can say, well, I don't deny the, that there's a right to private property. But then, if you argue that it's subordinate to the duty to minister to the needy, then it's not it's not a it's not a fundamental right. Now, Ayn Rand's perspective on private property is that um, is that it's a corollary of the right to life, which means it 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 you it flows necessarily from the fact that you have a right to live your own life. If you, can't, if you can't keep the products of the wealth that you create, then you're in effect, um, your, your right to life is, is, is compromised and undermined. You know, if you, if you grow a crop and you don't have a right to keep that and people can just take it away from you, how, is, how do you have a right to life? 
Um, so, you know, and, and, and she stresses that there are no human rights without property rights. So for her, property rights are, are a fundamental absolute right, not something that's secondary and subordinate, which is what he's arguing here. Uh, this is an important issue. So let me add one more uh, philosophic perspective on why I think the deeply Christian ideas really are at odds with capitalism, with property rights, and more generally with the perspective of individual rights. And it's this. What is the basic idea that even gives meaning to the idea of individualism uh, and individ individual rights in particular more than anything else? Why is it that we only get a respect for individual rights and individualism more generally, not beginning at the foundation of the Christian church, but only with the enlightenment later in the 16th, 17th centuries? Well, there's a couple of things, but the, the thing that I would mention as most important is the Enlightenment's stress on the efficacy of the individual mind, which uh, as a rational mind and as a rational mind with free will. You can't have the perspective that each of us is an individual with a sphere of, which requires a sphere of protection so that we can make our own choices. If you don't really believe in the power of the mind to make free rational choices. It is a common misnomer, and I've spoken on this in other talks. It's a common misrepresentation to think that, that Christian religion or, or really any kind of theistic religion actually believes in human free will. When you have the perspective that there is a divine being that's omniscient and omnipotent and has foreknowledge about everything that's ever going to happen, my argument is that it is impossible to reconcile that with the existence of human free will. And every major theologian who's ever tried to do it has done so only by watering down the concept of free will to mean nothing more than that we have the ability to do the things that we want to do, even though the things we want to do are basically predetermined and preordained by a divine being. There's no room for free will in an attitude like that. And that's why there's no room then for individualism. There's no reason to have the protection of individual rights in that kind of perspective. So it's it's an attempt to take the perspective of the enlightenment and kind of graft it on to Christian religious ideas that leads people to think, oh, uh, religion has some kind of respect for individualism and, and for property rights. I don't think that's, but I think that's just a grafting. It's not anything that comes from anything essential to these religious doctrines. What else is there? We've got a number of questions that have come up on sort of practical matters, like how can one oppose Christian ideas in a society where they are so prominent. And another person in Zoom asks, how can we prevent religion from having such an influence on the world uh, when it says that thanks to religion, there has been such great progress because scientists and intellectuals believed in God? 
Well, some of what we've just been talking about, I think, is is relevant to that. One is uh, you can help combat the idea that religion has had this kind of positive progress. If it's not really true, for instance, that uh, religion is that offers any kind of unqualified endorsement of the idea of free will, if it's not really true that uh, Christianity has the basis for a strong defense of property rights, then the more that you can, the better that you can explain what the actual Christian doctrines are and why they're incompatible with these concepts, the perhaps the better you can do it sort of taking the veneer of plausibility off of the face of religion. But then of course, that's not enough. You've also got to be able to offer an alternative. You've got to be able to offer an alternative philosophy that really does uphold free will and morality and, uh, and the possibility of human happiness. And of course, that's what I mean, we would argue uh, objectivism is a good, uh, is a, is a good alternative in that respect. Uh, yeah. There's a lot more you could do, but Keith, do you have further thoughts? Well, and, and the idea, and the idea that progress was the result is, th is, is thanks to religion because many scientists and intellectuals believed in God. I mean, I think uh, uh, that that ignores the fact that, you know, you had centuries and centuries of people believing deeply in God, but what happened in the Renaissance and, and in the scientific revolution was it was the reintroduction of, of ancient Greek ideas, particularly the ideas of Aristotle that opened people's minds and eyes to the idea that through reason, you can understand the world. And so, yes, people were people, you know, Galileo and Newton and all these great scientists were religious because everybody was religious in their day, but what was different about them was not what was unique and, and distinct about them was not their religiosity. It was the fact that they were, 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 were taking these ideas from Aristotle and, and applying them to the world in ways that had never been done before. I mean, and you know, I don't need to bring up the fact that Galileo battled with the church. He tried to get the priest to look through his telescope and they refused. And then he was hauled before the inquisition for uh, defending the view of the solar system that he put forward. Um, so, you know, the, the progress and the, you know, the science and technology that we owe today are, are the result of ideas that are the opposite of religion. This is, this point is not so much in response to the practical question about how to deal with, um, how to deal with religion in society, but I do want to spin off a bit of what you said about Galileo, because I think it's, I think it's also an important reminder that it's easy to take a look at the church today when it calls for tolerance, when it calls for pacifism, when it calls for the end of the death penalty and things like that, and think, oh, the church uh, has some kind of respect for individual human dignity, and then that makes it more plausible that it also stands for rights and maybe property and things like this. But you have to understand that this is the post-Enlightenment church, which both A, has been influenced by Enlightenment ideas as we previously discussed, but B, has also been robbed of its political power, in part because of the Reformation, in part because of further developments from the Enlightenment. And so you can expect that uh, an institution which has which no longer has political power when it doesn't have power is going to have to try to placate uh, its opponents. The test 
of what its deepest premises are is what happens when it actually does have political power? What happens when the Pope and the emperor are basically uh, running a country together as happened prior to uh, the Reformation and prior to the Renaissance? Uh, well, uh, and, and even in some ways during the Renaissance, well, what happens is what happened with Galileo. What happens is what happened with, uh, the, with the Inquisition and the Inquisition was happening up until the 18th century, uh, sometimes even later in many cases. That's where you see a quashing of dissent. That's where you see uh, complete abrogation of individual rights. I mean, forget about property rights. What about just the plain old right to life, uh, the right to be free from uh, being burnt at the stake simply for having a dissenting scientific theory? Uh, that, again, comes straight out of the church's advocacy of faith as opposed to reason, and it's impossible to dismiss. Yeah, I, I like the phrase that some people use is that the, the you know, Christianity and, and Catholicism has been de was defanged by the Enlightenment. But another data point that reinforces what you were just saying is to look at the, look at, at, at the Muslim world, um, which did not go through the same process, historical process that Christianity went through, and, and today, the countries that are dominated by the ideology of totalitarian Islam are some of the most violent and, and you know, are, are, the, are sort of the worst violent theocracies in the world today. And they certainly don't have the same kind of appeasing attitude that you're talking about. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to just briefly, we have a question from Gustavo. Francis is an Argentinian and a Peronist, lived all his life in authoritarian socialism. Is this why he attacks capitalism? So I think the whole thrust of our entire conversation for the last hour is to argue that the reason he attacked capitalism is because that is what Christianity advocates. It's not just Francis, it's, it's, it's the whole tradition going back to Jesus Christ. Um, and so it's, 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 it's the Christian altruist tradition is anti-capitalist and it's what gives rise to socialism. Socialism, communism, Marxism, these are secularized versions of Christian altruism. And I should mention that Ayn Rand grew up most uh, much of her early life in under authoritarian socialism and didn't seem <laughs> to be uh, hoodwinked by that in the way that allegedly Francis was, uh, and she she was able to challenge her authorities by exercising her own free will and thinking for herself and developing her own radically alternative ideas. Uh, and if you're interested in learning more about those ideas, I, I highly recommend some of the resources that I'm about to recommend. So Keith, maybe that's a good opportunity for me to, to segue to some of those. Um, so first of all, if there's one book to read to learn about the alternative viewpoint that we've been talking about today, which on all the fundamentals is diametrically opposed to the core ideas of this encyclical, but also of Christianity in its essence, the place to look is Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. We've touched on a number of ideas from that book uh, today already. But then if you'd like to dig in a little further and see Ayn Rand's nonfiction commentary on some of the issues we've been talking about, 
I'll point you to a few other resources. So one place to go first is to the Ayn Rand lexicon on ARI's website. That's at courses.aynrand.org slash lexicon. And you can type in uh, the term religion and you'll come up with a number of things that Ayn Rand wrote about religion, about Christianity. This page also includes a number of excerpts from the article that we referenced, Requiem for Man. If you'd like to read that whole article, Requiem for Man, which was Ayn Rand's critique of the 1960s Pope's encyclical, you can find that in Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. Unfortunately, that one's not online, uh, but you can get it if you get a copy of that book. Uh, I briefly mentioned uh, another commentary Ayn Rand wrote on a different papal encyclical. That was the one on the topic of contraception and abortion. That's of living death. That's available in the Voice of Reason. That one I think you can find online. And one last uh, item that I'll share is an article by our senior fellow, Ankar Gatte, which is an articulation of the objectivist alternative view of morality as an alternative to the religious view of morality. And this article is called Finding Happiness and Morality Without God. That is available on our publication, New Ideal. You can see it if you go to bit.ly slash finding hyphen morality. So we want to thank you again for joining us today for another episode of New Ideal. We want to thank uh, those of you who are joining us on the Spanish channel, and we want to thank our translator for the good work that she's done uh, bringing these ideas to you. I want to thank the donors who've supported us, including the couple of people who've donated with Super Chat. I see another one just came in from Brian. Uh, thank you very much, Brian. If you'd like to follow us in the future, best way to do that is to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Click on that red subscribe button in YouTube. If you want to get notifications when we go live or when new videos are posted, please click that bell button. Uh, please also remember, if you're watching this on YouTube right now, hit that like button. That's going to help us uh, game the algorithm and the way to get this channel noticed by more people. And same thing goes if you're watching us on Facebook right now. There's a like button right underneath the broadcast that you're watching. Please hit that like button to let people know that you like this and to help us play to the algorithm here as well. And as always, uh, if you'd like to send us comments on this episode, questions on this episode, suggestions for future episodes, send us an email to newideal at einran.org. We read everything that comes in through this address, even though we don't always get a chance to respond to it. And we have uh, done episodes in the past that were inspired by ideas sent to us by our listeners and our viewers. So thanks everyone again. Uh, thanks, Keith. And uh, we will sign off for now, but be coming to you again next week for another episode of New Ideal Live. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.